in this episode. This is me just checking I hate the general public once again. And we explore why they deserve to die. We're all friends here. What did you want to say, Leah? If I needed help and you were the only one that could help me, I'd probably kill myself now because look at you. You're not helping anybody. You're not helping yourself. We could have dinner together and discuss films and be very civilised. Yeah, sure. Whatever you want to do. And your first topic is franchises, big releases. Is that what we have to do? Because I'm bored shitless by the whole thing. Could we do something else instead? Well, that didn't last very long, did it? What is Ryan Johnson's strengths? Where did he come from? Why is he so mean? What is going on here? It's like some deep cabal secret, isn't it? And so this terrible dreg of a human being does one unselfish thing which turns out to be shoot himself through the heart. And you're giggling. I don't know if you're giggling at this part. I don't think we in the UK have a similar ritual. I think everyone just feels bummed out and goes to the pub. I can find no pleasure in ordinary people, even stupid ordinary people, who I have no sympathy for, committing horrible deaths. Oh yeah, that's very interesting, but I don't care. Still good. Because this feels like a world that doesn't deserve to survive. Oh, I agree with you, person, hypothetical person, who's saying this right now. I'm sorry I let you get attacked by a werewolf and then ended the world. It's, well, it's endings, and the world's ending, and it was supposed to be the millennium, of course it wasn't going to be the millennium, but we're all genuinely assured 2012 was the biggie. This was definitely the year where everything was going to end, and that was that. I may have made some unwise financial purchases based on this principle, but thus it didn't. And now here we are, many years later, and the horrible feelings sinking in that everything's just going to go on and on forever and without an end what's the point of anything i personally was looking forward to the end credits on it all and then finding some sort of solace in the fact it was over and getting some perspective on it all but no the perspectives never stop leo there's no end to the new nostalgia we're going to be manufacturing day by day for us in later year podcasts to whiffle on about where do we even begin So your problem this week is that the world hasn't ended. Yes. I'd I'd just like to offer you some words of comfort on that issue. How do you know it didn't? I mean, look around you. Doesn't the world at the moment look like just something that's unspurling? It's a tightly wound bobbin of wool, and now it's all coming loose from the spindle and just flopping all over the floor in a random knotted 
weird, tangled mess of chaos. I mean, that pretty much describes the world circa 2019. You're so right. I did die in 2012, and everything afterwards is like a John Cruise movie where he's having a nightmare, and everything's just unravelling around him in madness. He said, I like my sky, preferably with a bit of peanut butter, not just vanilla. No, a vanilla sky. Anyway, um... So, of course, we're here to discuss the the stuff that happened in 2012 that wasn't the top ten. And, uh, Ian, uh, I've lovingly prepared you some lists that you can read out and then we can discuss. So what is the first list? It's it's like a game show, isn't it? And your first topic is franchises, big releases. And in this particular uh, running, we have Underworld Awakening, the reboot attempt at the Underworld trilogy, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, Ted, Taken 2, how many relatives does this man have who fall into unfortunate situations? Jack Reacher, Django Unchained, finally someone in Hollywood tackles the thorny subject of, of slavery. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, these were the also-rans, in a sense. They didn't make the top ten, but there was a, a lot of fuss... I mean, not so much the Underworld one. I I think the Underworld one was a release. I think they're in chronological order as I went down the list. So Underworld Awakening is not supposed to be at the top. It's just the first one to be released. And, of course, vampires then ran into uh, some some dead president problems with Abraham Lincoln. Ted, potty mouth Teddy. Liam Neeson punches more stuff in in Kick Puncher. Tom Cruise punches some stuff in Jack Puncher. And Jamie Foxx punches some slave owners. Uh, when he goes Django Unchained. I don't think actually anyone cared. I don't think this, this is what, I don't mean anyone. I don't mean the audience. I mean the studios. I would say, you know, Underworld and, and, uh, Taken 2 are very much, uh, well, I suppose we may as well do those, mightn't we? Uh, and then the rest of them are all like, I don't know, we've got the Avengers, Dark Knights, wherever it is, Amazing Spider-Man. We've got all that going on. So whatever else you want to do, fine, go ahead. And that's how we ended up with Ted. We're both on record of, of saying the Underworld is one of our guilty pleasures. This overbaked vampire series which takes itself far too seriously. Awakening is a kind of what do you do after you've literally wrapped up all the big bads and it jumps into the future and humans now know vampires are around and our characters that got together in the trilogy now have a daughter and things like that and they get split up and... And I believe this script was actually, well, the story at least was put together by J. Michael Chodzinski, who's a writer I have a certain amount of respect for. But I have to say Awakening is my least favourite. And if this was supposed to kick off a new trilogy, it didn't really succeed because Blood Wars, as far as I can tell, is a complete kind of redo over again. And even though I think that was welcome, it, that was seemed to have been released by the studios with a kind of slip it out, hopefully no one will notice. So this is Underworld's beginning of its sad decline, if indeed it ever had heights to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I think that they've uh, done very well with what was overbaked to start off with. And the good news about it being overbaked from the get-go is that if the new one is a little bit flimsy and overbaked, it's like, well, it's right in keeping with the rest of them, really. I mean, what what defeats me is the Underworld. I think there was a six movie that came out earlier this year, maybe. Blood, Blood I can't Wars, remember. Blood Wars, the fifth one, which does actually pick up on where Awakening left off somewhat. Yeah, I watched that one. I'm sure there was another one. Was no, there maybe, one? maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I don't think there was, was another a... one. I hope there was, because then we'd have two villages and somehow my life would feel complete. Yeah, okay, well, uh, whatever the status thereof, 
five movies, even letting alone six. I mean, this isn't the Fast and the Furious. I mean, it's a lot more niche than just big dude drive car shoot gun. Well, Underworld, Lady in Underworld is the is the also ran to uh, Resident Evil. That's that's its claim to fame. Yeah, I mean, Underworld is doing fine uh, any time it does anything at all. If you've heard of the movie and it hasn't been released direct to, to DVD, it's doing okay. So that's where we are with Underworld. But then, I mean, I think that the, probably if we were going to look at this list of uh, big releases, I think in Quentin Tarantino's mind, Django Unchained was robbed of the position in the top ten. But I think in everyone else's mind, I think... Jack was the one who was ah reaching for those heights that he never quite attained in this uh, go around. In fact, in second as well, as far as I know. So yeah, um, well, I kind of underwhelming. I think it's very good, Tom Cruise, to have a completely second franchise where he's the ultimate super spy in the world. I mean, not really a super spy; he's actually a major. Uh, in the in the uh, Marines, I believe, or something like that, isn't he? Uh, but it's also based on the book series too. But yeah, it's it's Tom Cruise, ultimate Superman. You just have to accept this. I mean, Tom Cruise just doesn't play ordinary guys anymore, does he? He is he is the ultimate ultimate in whatever he's doing. And in some regards, I kind of like that. He's the only guy who seems to be doing any kind of male power fantasy these days. It, you just just like everyone feels embarrassed about them, but but. Tom Cruise is like, no, I am literally the best guy on the planet and doing whatever I'm doing. It has to be said that what Tom Cruise uh, is happy to be an ordinary guy, as long as he's an ordinary guy in a far-flung future, which is just blowing our minds. And he's like, yeah, this is me, this is Tuesday. And that's where he's content to be normal, is in a place that's blowing our minds. But if we're in the normal world, then he's got to be blowing our minds, because, you know. And then there was the mummy and that. That blew our minds in a completely <laughs> different way. But uh, let's uh, let's move on. So yeah, so all I'm going to say is that the fact. I mean, the, a, have you seen Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter? Uh, sadly, this is not on Netflix. No, it disappeared like without a trace after the DVD release, which is where I caught it. It sounds like a sketch. Well, you know, it, it's, well, it's based like, on it's, a it's, novel. It's, it's a gag. It sounds like a gag, though, doesn't it? It sounds like someone th- a throwaway line someone threw out one day as, as like a punchline in something or other and someone took it seriously it's like it's like cowboys versus aliens you know yeah it's i mean it, it's not entirely unsatisfying in fact i think it probably it, it's a shame it doesn't stream because i think that's where it would live its life as a streaming title people go let me watch this it's pretty good uh, but because the people who own the rights have no interest in that it's just you could, I suppose, you could probably buy a copy on DVD off Amazon. But again, nobody would want to do that. <laughs> it's a streaming title. So even me, I'm like, I didn't dislike it. If I was going to be a uh, whatever the guy's name is, uh, Paul Anderson, Paul W. T. Anderson, completist, I would have to buy that Three Musketeers, steampunk Three Musketeers. He did. I'm not that much of a completist. I actively dislike that movie. I think it's cardboardy and a waste of potential. Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, I had a whole heap more than that Three Musketeers abomination. Still not buying it. It's not happening, even though I'm quite well disposed towards it. It's just a nothing movie, and that is a big problem. Mm. Have you seen Django Unchained? Because I haven't. I haven't. I've seen clips of it because a lot of people talk about it. Tarantino is, is a director you talk about. Yeah, 
I, after years of people telling me I should lighten up and watch Inglorious Bastards, I watched half of Inglorious Bastards. And then I switched it off and went and did something that wasn't just people shouting in a really tedious way. When I, when I find people talking about Tarantino on, on the YouTube channel where I basically seem to live, they seem to be seriously praising for how he can construct a scene or, 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 and things like this and how he can keep you invested in the moment-to-moment things going on. But I do find he's a bit overlong overall in his movies. It feels like he, use, he could use a bit of editing. But uh, he seems to be an auteur, and he seems to be back in vogue again somewhat. Uh, so. uh, well, I think just because people desperately want it to be 1992 Pulp Fiction time again, but it never has been. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Yes, we, 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 we can't really say very much about it. I mean, I've seen clips of it. Samuel Jackson does a good turn as, as literally the, the ultimate Uncle Tom in the world. It was, I think his co-star got a lot of attention as, as a result of this movie, which did very well for his career. Yeah, I'm afraid for me, Tarantino's a t- turn-off. I'm not even going to watch this Star Trek movie he's apparently making. Okay, well, there we go. Taken 2, is there anything to say? I mean, Taken was huge when it first came out. Everyone was doing the joke of, of the phone call. And now we've, uh, I saw Taken 3 because I was stuck on an airplane at the time, so why the hell not watch it? And, and that, for me, has killed any interest in wanting to watch Taken 2. One kind of feels Taken was kind of a thing, and since then, he, he, Nielsen's gone around punching people everywhere. So really, do we need Kick Taken? Puncher, yeah. yeah. Do we need Taken anymore? Um, well, apparently there's a whole Amazon Prime series uh, based on Taken. But How many daughters does this man have? Not Taken yet. I'm not sure whether that's just a redo, like a lengthier redo of the actual first movie, or what, but I'll, I'll have a look in when I can be bothered. Uh, Taken 2's, the interesting trivia fact about that, is that if you haven't seen enough of um, Istanbul in Skyfall, you'll see all the other bits of Istanbul in Taken 2, because those were the only bits they were allowed to film in, because they weren't allowed to film in the same bit as Skyfall. All right, so if we cut these two films together, we get a kind of Google map of Istanbul, is what you say. The film crews of Turkey were well employed in the uh, summer of 2011. Uh, next list. Uh, kids, kids stuff. And there's something of a supernatural theme going on here. For we have Paranorman, Hotel Transylvania, Frankenweenie, and Wrecked Ralph as the kind of standout one there. Yeah, Wrecked Ralph really is a standout one. And actually, I am flabbergasted that the top ten has an Ice Age and a Madagascar in it, and Wrecked Ralph doesn't make it. Because Wreck-It Ralph is stupendous. I have watched this movie about five times now. It is so good. The others are good. No, I mean, Paranorman is good. Hotel Transylvania is fine. Frank and Weenie tries too hard. What's a small person made of these films? He hasn't seen Frank and Weenie because he tries too hard. It's not really very kiddie. His mother loves Hotel Transylvania. He'll kind of put up with it if it's there, but he'd rather watch something else. Paranorman's too much for him. He kind of likes Wreck-It Ralph. He doesn't really... The problem with Wreck-It Ralph for a very young child, and I imagine this is not much different in 2012 than it is now, is it has this thing in it called a video arcade where you have video games. Now, he's been in a games arcade, but these days the games are all like stand in a tube and have like pretend to be in the crystal maze at the end or like 
push a penny or like the machines are not, not like the machines in the arcade in Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah. It's like a relic of history. The idea of having cabinet after cabinet with video games in it doesn't, doesn't, you know, it's going to take a long time for him to wrap his head around that concept. And as such, then he finds it a bit strange. And obviously the jokes about Qbert and that are going to go over his head. Thankfully, the racing game is fine. I mean, I think this is what Disney are very clever with in Wreck-It Ralph. They've put in a lot of stuff for people who are not maybe video game aficionados, and they've put in a lot of stuff for people who are, and it, it doesn't trip over its own feet too much. I obviously find it far more hilarious than someone who doesn't really have a comprehensive knowledge of the way that video gaming went down from the early 1980s onwards, but there's still enough to enjoy besides that. So it's, it's stood the test of time, Wreck-It Ralph. It's very good. Oh, pitch invasion, but from an unexpected angle. Thank you, dear. It's my lunch. All right. Well, I wish there was a thing. I would, have, I would have made sure to have my pizza come out in time for, for this, and we could have a din- we could have dinner together and discuss films. We're very civilized. That that would be. We have to do it next time, definitely. I'm not. I'll, I'll nibble when I when you're talking. So you're going to have to talk more. Uh, no, Wreck It Ralph is really good. You should totally watch it. It's it's very good. Paranorman has this thing that means that Justin, if only he were here, would uh, be like, I've got a special place in my heart for it. Because Paranorman is not CG animated. Um, they designed all the, the characters and that in CG, but then they 3D printed models. And it's actually stop motion animation. And it's a very good movie, but I find it's a bit complex. It's for older children. It's not really for littleies. Hotel Transfer, you know, is totally for littleies. But I feel that the Adam Sandlerness of it comes off as a bit patronising, and Dylan kind of feels it instinctively. He doesn't know why he doesn't like it, but he just doesn't. And Frank and Weenie is Tim Burton. The end. Full stop. I don't need to go any further than that. Uh, so that's that's where we are with that. So uh, I would, yeah, wreck it, Ralph. I don't don't know about the sequel. I've heard. Heard it's disappointing, but Wreck-It Ralph is uh, a joyous uh, experience. Uh, next list: items of interest. Premium Rush isn't that like Fast and the Furious but on bicycles? I don't know. <laughs> sort of yes. Uh, Resident Evil Unnumbered: colon, Retribution. Why this wasn't in franchises, I have no idea. You know, clearly, it's, it's more interesting than it is a franchise. Quite right. You're quite right. It should have been in franchises. I'm terrible. <laughs> it's quite alright, I presume like, he must have set it aside for some particular reason. End of Watch is some sort of cop movie. Uh, Pitch Perfect, is this some sort of football film? Uh, <laughs> no, it's a musical. Agro, <laughs> I have seen. And then we have the uh, dystopian reimagining of the Snow White film in The Seven Psychopaths. <laughs> Very good. So, yes, uh, Premium Rush. So, Fast and Furious, bling bling. I think the main point here, and we're going to come up to Joseph Gordon a little bit later, is that it was a good entry in the CV of Joseph Gordon a little bit. I've seen it. It's it's pretty decent. It's this idea of making an action movie, but like at a very small scale where it's about bike couriers and not about, you know, guns and all that kind of stuff. Or at least there is a gun in it, but it's not about like gunfights. It's about someone racing through the traffic and maybe getting killed by being run over by cars. And that's where they find their kinetic energy. Having proved their point, they move on, and that is it. 
Uh, let's quickly talk about Resident Evil due to that. You're right, it should have been in franchises. Uh, yes, up against Underworld. So we had a Resident Evil and an Underworld this year. Retribution is very much the most, and this is an entry in the Resident Evil franchise series. Essentially, it's almost the last one, but then there's a last one. And the last one didn't happen for about, because of Mila Jovovich. Having a baby. Oh, women and they're having a baby. It didn't happen until like 2017 or something. So there was a long gap between this and the very end. Uh, the way it kind of pans out is Resident Evil is a thing. Resident Evil 2 is like what everyone expected Resident Evil to be like, but it wasn't. And so they had to make a second. I don't even know why. Third one's like a Mad Max type riff. Fourth one is the prison riff. This one is like a sort of greatest hits run through before they go into the final, which is a, a big thing about a tank. It's fine. I mean, there's not much more to say. As a fan of this franchise, I'm like, yes, yeah, cool, but there's not really much to say about it. End of watch. Now, this is quite interesting. I actually learned why people should feel a resonance with this title via an episode of Elementary. Uh, and in one episode of Elementary, there is a police officer who dies, and uh, it's kind of a thing. So at the end of the episode, they do this thing where the captain of his precinct picks up the radio, c- calls for him, someone says, no response from his bad number, and he goes, very well then, end of watch. Yeah? So that is a thing that apparently happens for real... Not saying that Americans are melodramatic or anything. I don't think we in the UK have a similar ritual. I think everyone just feels bummed out and goes to the pub. But apparently that's what happens, okay? So anyone who happens to know this, which is probably a very small number of people, probably cops quite a lot. So this is a movie that's supposed to appeal to cops, except it's not supposed to appeal to them because it's meant to be like, oh, well, I don't really want to think about that. Sounds like a a bit of a bummer. So, yeah, if you happen to know that that's how they sign off dead cops who die in the line of duty in American police precincts, then you'll know that this film is about a couple of police officers who are going to die. Hmm. And that's it. I mean, that's to tell you that in the title. So what's the thing? And the only thing that's keeping it is your not, lack of knowledge about the rituals of American police departments. Not seen it, but I'm like, there is no way in which this is a good title now. It's too obscure for most people. And for those people that do know what it means, it says, hmm, that doesn't sound like a fun movie. I think I'll avoid that. It's like calling a movie 21 Gun Salute. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, kind of. Argo, yeah, I've seen that. It's fine. The, the movie that made everyone feel a lot better about Batflack. And to be fair, Batflack was fine. But we'll talk about that again. Seen Seven Psychopaths? No. I have. It was fine. There we go. That's our review, everybody. I think, like Frankenweenie in our previous category, it tries too hard, and that is a problem. And then we have uh, Pitch Perfect, which I I really like. Here's the thing. They've just dropped all of Glee on UK Netflix, and Sue really wanted to watch it. And Glee itself is supposed to be like a satire on Disney's habit of making high school musicals for a bit. Like, just before this, if you, it's not something that comes across most people who weren't parents of teenage girls 
during this period. But Disney, like Zac Efron and all of that kind of business, high school musical. So Glee, the television series, was like an arch satire of high school musical. And Pitch Perfect is an arch satire of Glee. It's like a regression of fabulousness. Yeah, yeah. Snake eating its own tail. Uh, so there we go. So those are our items of interest. And what tells me, this is the point. They're called items of interest, uh, but they all have like, apart from the franchise, which is there, all the ones that are actually just items of interest are all things. It's like, okay, you've earned your place in the culture as a thing. But one thing that strikes me is that with the exception of Pitch Perfect, which was, as we know historically, a battler, and did much better than they thought it would do, and spawned one okay sequel, and one hideous, awful, Adam Sandler-worthy sequel. They've not really made a big mark in the culture, but for different reasons. Premium Rush is underrated. End of Watch. Oh, the guy who directed End of Watch also directed Suicide Squad. Ooh, you see where the problem comes in. Argo's very worthy. It's a bit of an Oscar bait movie, and yes, therefore I, I would agree with kind you. Of also, it's, does it's, that it's job. also it's a Hollywood self-reflecting on itself movie at the same time. Yeah, so, well, Seven Psychopaths is also about a man who writes a screenplay and is also a gangster. It's like meant to be a sort of commentary on Tarantino-esque movie tropes made by the person who made In Bruges. Unfortunately, it's as self-indulgent as a Tarantino movie and therefore fails to be adequately satirical enough. Uh, Colin Farrell's pretty good in it, though, as is Stanley Tucci. Next category? Next list? Yeah, next list. Is uh, is horrible, horrible, horrible. I feel it even you've written horrible three times and I feel I should be shaking my head whilst I say it. Um, (laughs) It starts off with the Bugs Bunny biopic, This Means War. Uh, follow that, uh, Zeus finally deals with the terrible stink in Bath of the Titans. Uh, I think it's going to be L7, and you missed my battleship. We then have uh, The Watch, which is presumably a prequel to End of Watch. Total Recall is the remake of Total Recall, minus the twist from Total Recall. The Born Legacy, uh, well, that didn't last very long, did it? Followed by Sinister and Paranormal Activity 4. Doesn't matter how rubbish it is, because we literally made it for £7. So who cares? We're going to make bank. This means War, Battleship and the Bourne Legacy were actually supposed to be taken seriously as contenders for the top ten. And that just tells you... This is like I say, I'm getting this distinct feeling that, in fact, this is the year where if you're not wearing a cape and bat ears or wearing an iron man armor or a captain america armor or ponce about the place in a tuxedo shooting international spies or, or based studios, on a book or based on a young adult book the studios are basically like what are you doing oh yeah whatever you just go ahead and do it because they really don't care this is just stuff oh yeah we were making a big science fiction independence day style epic based on the board game battleship how about that yeah Okay. I've played battleships. How come I never get to play as the aliens? Yes. At least you, you continue to be you. Whereas Taylor, Taylor Kitsch, I think his name was, who, this was his next big opportunity after the previous years, was it John Carter? That was it. His career is, this, you're looking at the, the end of his career. They sunk his battleship with this movie because he proved 
he just couldn't cut it as a box office draw, and not because the projects he decided to get involved with were terrible. Um, in fact, John Carter was pretty good. The only thing terrible about that, again, was the title. You know that story, right? I'm sure yeah. we've told that story. You should have got a Warlords of Mars or something, and then we would have been fine. Yeah, but the point was that they deliberately took Mars out of it because a focus group proved that films that have Mars in the title don't perform well at the box office. But it's set on planet Mars. I mean, I'm sorry, if you think Mars films don't work, you, you're on a bit of a loser before you begin there, really, aren't you? Yeah, um, there we are. trick you into watching a film about Mars. <laughs> because you'll be like, John Carter doesn't mention Mars. Must be okay. Do we have Do we have anything to say about Sinister, Paranormality, Born Legacy? We were huge Born fans once upon a time, weren't we? Born Legacy is quite interesting as being the red-headed stepchild of a franchise where the franchise hasn't disowned it. It is seen as a chapter in the Born franchise. It takes place in the Born world. It's like a Born story, you know, if you will, away from the main action. It tries so hard to do something good in that universe. And if it had worked, well, we'd be looking at our second successful cinematic universe. The only problem being that it would be like a weird spy espionage cinematic universe. Kind of really weird. But, yeah, thankfully it didn't work, so we just went back to Jason Bourne a few years ago, and that's what happened. The Watch, of course, was renamed from something else like neighborhood watch or something because there was a, i couldn't follow it but america had upset people when it was called the original thing so they changed its name go figure um and these are the things that were bad in 2012 i not just exclusively uh, i'll do the next list because it's quite a long one uh, the rest of everything else that got released this year was uh, 21 jump street which is pretty good chronicle which was not very good um Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance was also not great. No, John Carter was this year. Sorry, John Carter and Battleship from one year. That is going to end a career, let's face facts. Mirror Mirror and Snow White and the Huntsman. So if you wanted a Snow White movie with a twist, this was your year. The Twilight Magic definitely isn't there. Lockout, which is roundly uh, mocked for its PlayStation 2S CG sequences, but is that in fact a fairly fun diehard in a outer space prison uh, romp, Dark Shadows, Tim Burton, what do you want to say? Prometheus actually came out this year. Uh, so we get to talk about it after all. And The Odd Life of Timothy, oh wow, The Odd Life of Timothy Green. So yes, so these don't even count as horrible, they just count as this is stuff that happened. And again, we return to our theme. If it didn't, wasn't involved in one of the things that made all the money, the studio seemed to have just taken their eye off the ball and just let people do whatever the hell they want. Ah, well, what's that, Mr. Besson? You want to make a movie about Guy Pierce doing Die Hard in a prison that's suspended an orbit around thing where all the prisoners seem to come from Aberdeen? Yeah, sure, whatever you want to do. What's that, Tim Burton? You want to make a film adaptation with um, a f- show from the 70s that had a kind of cult following, and it was a cult following in the 70s, and since... Everybody's forgotten and nobody knows anything about. Mm, a bit concerned. What's that you say? You want to put Johnny Depp in it? Well, of course you do. Go <laughs> on, have some money. Ridley, another sequel to Alien that you're directing? I'm sure we'll be able to sell it on that. What's the script like? Oh, you actually don't bother. Just, you know. It doesn't matter. Whatever. I mean, just make up on the day. I would. And John Carter of Mars, you say? Well, take off the of Mars 
Because I'm sure people will be flocking to see it. Yeah, I mean, seriously, the studios are just all over the place with these. I mean, I think that what ha- may have happened to counter this view that it's just madness, pure madness, is that in this year, at this time, the studios realised they were taking a big risk. Avengers was a big risk. What if Skyfall doesn't work out? People have been saying Bond's been going to go wonky for a while. How do we follow the Dark Knight? We'd better sew up that Twilight franchise, but good. And the Hunger Games, this could be huge. Better not take our eye off that ball. That basically there were projects the studios were like, we have to get this over the line. And then this, this was all stuff done by like the intern, like the rest of the films of the year were like, yeah, he's in from the high school. We'll just let him greenlight projects. That's how it feels to me. Have you seen any of these movies? Prometheus. Oh, of course you've seen Prometheus because everybody did and they went, why did I watch that? Did you go, yes. why did you watch that? Yeah. You didn't fool me the second time, I'll tell you there. 21 Jump Street, obviously, is the breakout here being made by, haha, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller and actually being surprisingly refreshing and entertaining uh, to the point where even critics were like, oh yeah, okay, this is okay, it's actually quite funny. But apart from that, it's like, well, people got very excited about Chronicle, and I think they shouldn't have. And I was proved right when the guy who made yeah. uh, Chronicle got kicked off directing Rogue One. No, it wasn't Rogue One. He he was it was Fantastic Four. The, the Monsters guy did did Rogue One, and it was Lord and Miller that did. Oh, Solo. right. Okay, good. Got it. Right. Yes. And Lord of Miller did Solo, and probably should have been allowed to continue, but it all worked out fine. So hey, let's move on. But Yes, I knew that the Chronicle guy got kicked off because he couldn't handle some bigger project. And so that kind of proves the point, really. Yes, and the Fantastic Four stick, as it's known, does have the stink of all the weird decisions made on Chronicle all over it. So, yeah, it's just a... But I think, oh, and as for the odd life of Timothy Green, it doesn't work as a mm-hmm. title. It doesn't work on a poster. It doesn't work as a trailer. It doesn't work when you're looking at what's on at your local multiplex and thinking, I wonder which of these I should watch. Because you definitely have not picked The Odd Life of Timothy Green. I could tell you that for certain. It doesn't work as a DVD. It doesn't work if you actually go to the cinema and watch it. Well, I imagine it doesn't. I haven't done that. But it doesn't work as a streaming thing because you put it on and you just sat there for... I mean, yeah, okay. I suppose it works in the sense that you don't switch it off before the end. Basically, what keeps you going while you're watching The Odd Life of Timothy Green is thinking, they can't, this, this can't really be happening, can it? I mean, nobody really thought this was a good idea, did they? Well, I mean, at some point in this film, surely it's just going to stop and a board is going to show for the remaining runtime say, ha ha, fooled you. Surely that's what's going to happen. But it doesn't. It goes all the way through its runtime. And odd doesn't even begin to describe it. Rubbish. That's probably what begins. The rubbish, the rubbish film about Timothy Green. That's what it should have been called. Then at least it would have been honest. honest. We're about to dip, in, dip into our, our three main topics of conversation. The things that I think set the tone in 2012. Uh, but you may be a big 2012 fan and be like, well, wait a second. You've talked about all these movies that you've talked about. And sure, they did come out in 2012. But what about 
these movies, which I think were very important. Well, well, I agree with you, person, hypothetical person, who's saying this right now. That is why I've decided that it would be best to talk about the following movies on their own show, being as they have a whisper of philosophy or something to talk about on a beardy basis that makes them the subject of a whole show. So those films are Iron Sky, Nazis on the Moon, Cloud Atlas, which we've both seen, and we have talked about it during our Wachowski's retrospective, but I feel it needs the full run-through, particularly in our new beardy phase. Silent Hill Revelation, which will probably get lumped in with Silent Hill as a whole. I mean, we've talked about Silent Hill, but we've never done a Silent Hill show, so that might be a good thing. Uh, Robot and Frank, which is uh, sort of a a kind of independent robot movie. I saw it on a plane. Yes, you saw it on a plane. Cool. Well, you've seen it then. And Ruby Sparks, which is not a great movie, in my opinion, but certainly has plenty to say about the relationship between an author and that author's creation, and so therefore worthy of discussion on our beardy uh, side. But we are now going on to our three big movies, and... uh, Forbearing any air of mystery, the three movies we're going to be discussing are The Cabin in the Woods, Dread, and Looper. I'm going to put this in your hands, Ian. I don't know whether I want to discuss Looper first or last. We could take the human resources approved communication method of the shit sandwich and talk about Cabin in the Woods and Dread with Looper in the middle so that the unpleasantness is only just encapsulated by cloudy cultural joy. Uh, where, where should we discuss Looper? Now, in the middle, or at the end? Uh, well, actually, I feel my preference would be to discuss Cabin in the Woods last, because I feel that's the one that's going to make the clock run on. So if we leave it to last, we'll hopefully we'll be too knackered out to drag on the conversation for an hour in itself. Right, so Dread first, Let's or Looper? Dread, dread, then Looper, for a bit of a Looper. And then Cabin in the Woods at the end, where we can both talk until the cows all die of old age. Dread. I think anyone who knows anything about Dread is well aware that this movie is the shoulda, woulda, coulda Dread. It wiped away the past, showed us what was possible, and then made no money at the cinema, possibly in due in no small part to a very weird release programme. That, that meant that it, it couldn't be seen by sufficient people to get it a sequel. I have come to the conclusion, and this is leading off from my thoughts to be discussed later on Gotham, that maybe, because essentially what's being talked about at this moment now in history is a Mega City One show, like a streaming series. So it's like Dread without Dread, or maybe Dread makes an appearance, but he's not the main character, Mega City One is the main character. And I'm wondering whether that might do the Gotham trick, cutting the ties that Dredd has to be involved in absolutely everything and letting us take a look at the gallery of grotesques and crazy situations that come up in Mega City 1. So maybe this is a blessing in disguise. And therefore my point is, Dredd, is he a, he's a great central character in a comic book, but does that translate to movies stroke television, do you think? What is your relationship? Do you feel that Dread holds Dread back? Interesting conversation point. I think the character that cinema has that is probably most like Dread is Robocop. 
And Robocop has found a very hard time to find his feet outside of his origin film. Of course, Dredd is, has no origin particularly. He just is Judge Dredd, and he does Judge Dredd things. So he's basically like, yeah, if, if on cinema, uh, you can't have Robocop beyond his origin story, and Judge Dredd is an origin storyless Robocop. I can see the issues here. In terms of something that you just read for a few panels, where he's just full on awesome, I could see why that would be fully entertaining. You know what I'm saying? You know, because you were talking about Dread and you were you were going a bit a bit, bit misty eyed there. I have to say about it all the, the sad state of the film. Having done a podcast with you for umpteen number of years, I of course am well aware of the affection you have for Dread. It just seems to come up like you have to scratch at it like a phantom limb of these sequel films that never got made. Uh, yes, I mean I think that many people who like Dread are in the same boat there, but. By the same token, you're quite right, bringing up Robocop is a good uh, shout, because the reason why you can't really go beyond Robocop with Robocop is because the way you leave Robocop at the end of Robocop, it's not a happy ending. And going on past the point at which he's like been accepted by the president of Omni Consumer Products and he's now free to go on to his life, the life life he's got is that he's like half a person in a metal shell and all of the attempts at sequels kind of talk about this guy's not in a good way and he's never going to get a happy ending he's never going to go back to his wife and son because he can't now he's a thing he's a product he's a cyborg and it's a whole existential thing it can't there's no way it's just like it's cool for us to see robocop with his shiny leg and it opens up and there's a gun inside and his punchy thing with the spike that also reads databases and thumping around and all of this kind of stuff. It's great. And watching me eat baby food and, and, and doing the thank you for your cooperation bit. That's all cool for us from the outside. But for the actual person being Robocop, there's no escaping the fact that it's rubbish being Robocop. Hence, you can't really go beyond the origin story. Yeah, okay, so we did a good thing once. Best, you know, maybe put him out of his misery after that because it's not a great existence, to be honest. Dread again, he has no origin. And in a movie culture obsessed with origin stories, that's always going to be a problem. Like, they're always like, well, the audience is asking, who is this Dread guy? Where did he come from? Why does he do this? Why is he so mean? What is going on here? And that's what the executives are worried about. They don't know who Dread is. They don't know why people should just, you know, go along with it. So therefore they make life difficult and therefore it fails which is again why i say possibly saying well let's forget about dread because unlike dread say judge anderson in fact what dread is is an origin movie for judge anderson because she's a rookie who hasn't even made full judge status at the beginning of this movie and i think you know they had their eye on it maybe there'll be a spin-off i think that that's possibly given the way that television has gone down television Vision will be kinder to the dull megacity one thing than movies were. I think this is the right canvas. And Dread in particular demonstrated that you don't need a sky-high budget in order to be able to produce those impressive scenes. I, I, growing up in the UK, the... 2000 AD, although, 2000, yes, 2000, 2000 AD. It's just like, it's a comic you just occasionally bought because you used to be able to buy comics in, in newsagents and that would be a place you'd occasionally pop into. So you'd have the odd car journey or you were ill in hospital and you get a 2000 AD comic. And so you always dip in, in and out of the world of, of Judge Dredd here and there. But it's one of those properties that's always sort of struggled to find its feet. 
everyone feels it could be really good, but no one's quite landed it yet. And I, I do think that cinema's not quite the right format for it. Uh, make a City One, is, is it impossible to make a series around a character who is essentially perfect at what he's doing and doesn't particularly change? I mean, he's like, he's the ultimate policeman for the world that he exists in. I mean, he's the appropriate policeman for the world he exists in. And in, the, in his own particular social context, he is a great hero. But is, is it something that uh, audiences want to go watch in mass, or is he more or less of a cult figure? Ironically, uh, Judge Dredd's probably closest literary relative who works at Gangbusters is Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes turns up in Watson's origin story as just the whole thing made out of whole cloth, and in the whole time he never really changes. Uh, I've recently watched all of Elementary, uh, which is the best Holmes, in my opinion, for the modern world, uh, and in that he does... Uh, well, I've got to a shark jumping moment at the moment. They might be able to rescue it. But they managed to do this amazing uh, Spider-Man-esque thing with uh, Sherlock Holmes Elementary of seeming to give him character growth without actually making his character, you know, grow, which would be inconvenient. Yeah, they just add more to his repertoire of Holmes being Holmes. If they were to actually introduce a significant change, to Holmes, it would, I think, fall apart pretty rapidly. But the things that they do do are kind of inconsequential to the core. And that, that's how you've got to approach these things. So in a way, the sort of partnering him with Al Anderson is genius because it does give you a way to see him compared to uh, someone you can sympathise with a bit more and to see him as this grand kind of monstrous thing. Uh, yeah, and I do think for a long time period, I think it would be better doing television because television writers are more adept at keeping a character staying still while appearing to give them problems that will force them to grow. And I do not think cinema is very good at that. So, yeah, I think, I mean, you know, when I say we discuss in the question of would the Mega City one have more potential to be a better vehicle for introducing dread to everybody? The answer is, yeah, undoubtedly, more potential. Who knows whether they'll make it? I mean, Netflix is the, 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 they're the guys in the seat and they haven't been too disappointing so far when it comes to television series. So, probably be fine. And now I come to think about it, doesn't the Stallone movie have that character beat where he sort of realizes he shouldn't be such an officious cop arsehole at one point in the movie? So he, he has to have that mellowing point. Like, no, Judge Dredd uh, is a force of nature. You don't understand. It's like, obey the law. Why? It's, yes, like, it's, it's I just... am the law. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's the point. If you cannot get behind the fact that this guy is the law, then just go home. Okay, so, uh, Looper. Let's talk about Looper. We need to talk about Looper. This is worthy of consideration because I, everybody went nuts for this movie when it came out. Do you remember that? I do remember the hype. Everyone going, oh did my God, they've got Love Hewitt looking like a, a, a young Bruce Willis. How amazing. They have um, Paul Dano plays one of the other guys, Loopers, in the movie. And he's the one where he lets his other half go and then they cut bits off him and it um, manifests. Which, the first time around, I was like, oh, stupid. This time around, I'm like, no, to be fair, this is one of the one consistent 
tropes that they manage to apply reasonably well throughout, which is that when you and your future self exist, uh, coexist in one time frame, anything that happens to you that would scar them or whatever in the future happens simultaneously to the way that it happens, you know, in, and that is fine. Absolutely fine. It's about one of the only things I'm like, I, I mean, everything else I thought was worse. That was the one thing where I was like, okay, I'm going to give that. That is actually all right. I don't mind that at all. But I don't understand from Looper why Disney were like, hey, why don't you direct and write a Star Wars movie? I mean, I don't mind the movie. It is a bit messy. But I don't understand why anyone would be confident of his abilities, given that this was his CV. Not made to direct it, but write it as well. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. that's an odd one. And indeed, it's, it is a wound that I've picked over many, many times. And I've just got to resign myself to the next film's going to sink it or, or not. Just refresh me on the premise, because I understand he's a hitman who's in the past, and the people from the future send people to him for him to kill. And then at some point, he has to kill his future self to close the loop. So why is it these hitmen have to ultimately kill themselves? Right. Okay. So the idea is that, I mean, he explains this in the most didactic, I'm going to explain something to you now voiceover you could possibly imagine. They send people back. And I think it's probably because people are trying to think, where's the cleverness that they miss it first time round? Because I was like watching it. I was like, okay, so I'm following this because I have no choice but to follow it because it's like a lecture. It's ridiculous. Basically, they send people back because in the future you can't dispose of bodies because it's too difficult to dispose of bodies in chronologically, you know, contemporaneously. So they send them into the past, which is illegal. Only gangsters use time travel in this postulated universe. I mean, this is just one of the least ridiculous things in a number of ridiculous things where it's like you are pushing the bounds of my suspension of disbelief here. Uh, so they send these people back. The loopers shoot them and dispose of bodies and it's all a fairly humdrum due to the fact that um, those bodies don't exist so as long as you've got a routine down for getting rid of the bodies it's just like a very boring job that happens to involve killing people with sacks over their heads but then eventually one of the people with a sack over your head that you meet is you and you know that it's you because they pay you for all the other ones in ingots of silver but when you kill yourself they pay you a lot larger amount of gold, solid gold ingots. And the reason for that is because they don't want you to exist with all of your memories of what you've done for them in the future. So they put you in a time travel, then you kill yourself and dispose of your body before you get there. And that way there is nobody to connect you to those gangsters in the first place. So fair enough. I mean, you know, okay, cool. What initially struck me on this second time around, the second second loop is that that's boring i mean it's fun it's like fine maybe you could do like a 300 500 word short story about it for an anthology and explain the premise as like a gag it's boring it's it's utterly tedious the legwork there is getting through explaining how it all works and that's what takes up like the first 40 minutes of the film is them explaining how it works when it works fine um, there's even a part where there's a montage of him doing it and showing, oh, isn't it boring? He just goes out to a field every day. Some geezer appears out of nowhere 
her on a tarp. He shoots that geezer in the stomach without even looking at him, strips the body of silver ingots, rolls the guy up in the tarp, takes him to a furnace, dumps him in, in the furnace, and then goes home. And, well, re- retains his, gets his cash for silver from the guy who's given him the jobs. And that's what he does day in, day out. It's as boring as an office job it's super tedious but then you see like the guy who closes his loop and he gets golden and he goes out drinking and uh, allows for the dropping of the line the people attracted to this career are not the most forward-thinking people in the world ha ha what a joke and then you see paul dano accidentally oh no he doesn't basically paul dano's future self hums the song that paul dano knows his mother hummed to her and then i just looked at his lips lies and I just couldn't, uh, which leads to him getting captured and then cut apart by a sort of back alley surgeon, so that the guy does this whole sequence where his fingers disappear and his legs disappear, and you know by the time he gets there, he's got no nose, and how does he smell awful, and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just like, yeah, so there's that, and that takes, and then you finally get to the point where Joey Gordon-Levitt's supposed to kill himself, and himself knows that there's no going to be no nursery tune humming here so he like spins round so that the buckshot from the blunderbuss goes into the gold and not into him because he's got like thick gold ingots all over his back uh, which you'd wonder that nobody ever thought of that technique before but then strips one of the gold ingots out of the now damaged packaging and throws it at Joseph Gordon-Levitt's head hitting him and then runs off so it's not like Joseph Gordon-Levitt is caught by a sudden bout of sentimentality like the last guy. He's just stupider than his older self, which I guess we'd all hope that we are stupider than our older self, because otherwise, if our older self is stupider than we are now, how depressing is that? That's how it goes down. Um, and so then you have to get into the mechanics of the what and the where. It kind of, I understand that Ryan Johnson is kind of doing a, a noir riff. And in fact... There's a very clever noir joke, which is that the topics of film noir were often post-Second World War kind of, or even interwar, tropes of men who were damaged by their time in the army or whatever it was who'd come back from war and were finding themselves being private eyes or whatever um, because, you know, they were damaged inside and that was kind of part of the whole thing, which is actually very rich as a narrative vein uh, in films and books to, to have this character who's wounded by the past and he's trying to make up for stuff now. They have read in their ledger. And they want to wipe it out. That's all fine, yeah? And in Looper, there's this joke where these guys are damaged by their future selves, by the fact that they know they're going to kill all these people, then kill themselves, and they're going to dump themselves into a furnace and this actually forms their personality to a certain extent it's like a joke you're not a bad person or a wounded person because of what you've done you're a bad person or a wounded person because of what's going to happen to you that you happen to know about because of the existence of time travel ha 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 yeah it's like okay that's a joke again we've got another 200 word time travel story about that that just kind of and lays that out as a, isn't that funny kind of thing. And mashing them together doesn't really make a longer story. There's this whole thing in the first act about he goes to a strip 
club and there's a stripper and he wants to rescue her like you know in that kind of and it's i think it's supposed to demonstrate that he's kind of childlike like like he's just being spoon-fed money and he's addicted to drugs because his job is so boring that that a drug addict could do it like quite easily just go and shoot people over over on a rat treadmill there's i think it's supposed to be a clever twist that that he offers her this bunch of money to run away with him and escape from all of this and she's like look at yourself i'm doing fine my job makes money if i was you know what she basically says and if she'd have said it it would have been better is if i needed help and you were the only one that could it help me, I'd probably kill myself now because look at you. You're not helping anybody. You're not helping yourself. So there, there, this is the thing. Our protagonist is a crappy person. And so we see this bit where his other self deflects the bullets and beats him up and runs away. But obviously that can't have happened. So in a kind of acceptable storytelling way, they do the other loop first where he just shoots himself, gets the money and goes off and lives a life. And it turns out that when he gets to be Bruce Willis's age, which even in 2012 must have been in his mid-60s, yeah, he meets this Japanese girl and they're, oh, they go go and live. And then they were thinking about maybe having a baby because she's about 20. It's like, sorry, arrested development? That didn't clear up for you, did it? You're just, uh, you're sleeping with a girl who's young enough to be your granddaughter and then thinking about making babies with her. Thankfully, she escapes this terrible, terrible double man baby fate because a bunch of gangsters go in and kill her and, and you know dump him in a time machine at which point we go back to the bit of the loop that we saw earlier where he does the, the bricks and the what have you so but and that whole the, the second act here is very short yeah and in fact there's there's more than three acts in this three act play and where he comes back uh, and and escapes um, they this is a film so presumptuous it kind of does a back to the future too within itself where we see a sequence of events. Then we have the bit where Bruce Willis, where Joseph Gordon of it, ages into Bruce Willis, then gets put in Time Machine. And then we see the whole thing again from the Bruce Willis point of view. And they're like, yeah, we literally just saw this 20 minutes ago. It's not like a clever riff like when they did it in Back to the Future Part 2, where they had to recreate bits because they weren't ever expected to do this. You totally wrote this into the script, and we have just seen this. So this is uh, it's just actually pretty dull. So, yeah, then Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis have a meeting in a cafe in which they say some things, but which this time you're too bored to care about it. And then, you know, seemingly out of nowhere, but cleverly, and I put cleverly in inverted commas, out of nowhere, we have this whole Emily Blunt situation where her kids like a, like that, right. Her kids are powerful psychic telekinetic, yeah, like, that's kind of part of the point, right? But Ryan Johnson, upon writing this part of the process, ah, oh, this seems to come out of nowhere. I'd better set this up so it can be plant and payoff. So you literally like, I'm a looper, I do this. Hey, this seemingly unrelated thing about a third of the population have this telekinetic mutation. I'm sure that's not going to come up again. Anyway, back to the looper thing, continue with the first act, and you're like, well, why did you, me- why have we got telekinetics in this? Like, as a writer, there are ways that you can do that, but that, the way that Looper does it, 
is absolutely the polar reverse of how to introduce that because it may as well have just put like big sirens all around the screen and and or a character sitting behind them in the car who goes, stop talking about telekinetic. Nobody's going to mention that for the whole of the rest of the, this film. Are they, audience? Of course not. Why would you be having a conversation about it? It's dumb. It's stupid. This isn't a film about telekinetics. Or is it? Do you know what I mean? They couldn't, they could have done that. It wouldn't have made the film any more clumsy. You're, you're holding your head in your hands. You've seen this film. You know what I'm talking about, right? You have a comment about the whole TK thing. Well, I was just actually going to go, well, because Ryan Johnson gets a lot of bashing in my corner of the internet, and I just wanted to ask you, as someone who's an outside observer, really, to the whole fiasco around Ryan Johnson, what is Ryan Johnson's strengths? He can write a moment and a passable line of dialogue. It's more, more vital is his weakness, which is that he is a crappy storyteller. This is what I'm saying. The TK thing is just one of a number of ways in which his story is like begging the audience to be like, wait a second, could we just, you know, and that's the whole point. Essentially, and I, I, telling a story is like doing a magic trick. Exactly. The whole point is that the whole thing is nonsense and it probably has holes in it. The, answer to this is not to try and hide the holes in the sense of try to seal them up completely because it's impossible in a thing that you've made up that didn't happen a professional lie there is always going to be something that doesn't quite add up the art of the storyteller is to hide those things so well people don't notice them when they hear the story and then when they can Consider the story because they love it so much and they realise what the problem is, e.g. Indiana Jones not doing anything in Raiders of the Lost Ark. They don't care. They're like, oh yeah, that's very interesting, but I don't care. Still good. And that's the point. In, in, in fact, Looper is like the reverse of Indiana Jones. Yeah, Indiana Jones is a film with a fundamental flaw that should ruin the story in that Indiana Jones doesn't actually do anything the thing that makes any difference during the whole film. And yet you watch it and you enjoy it and you get involved in it every time because Steven Spielberg is a, a master storyteller and you realise that this is all nonsense but you don't care. Whereas Looper is the exact opposite where it's like you pull in for it, it's got interesting things in it, telekinesis, time travel, it's got good actors in it, it's got a nice visual look, blah, blah, blah. But he's told the story in such a terrible ham-fist manner that you're just like just end i am bored i am so bored by this and that is right the problem with ryan johnson is that in little bits he can do something good like the whole thing about the people who get into this profession aren't the most forward-thinking people in the world that's a fair enough line it's not genius but it's good and it's solid and the joke works and it elicits a wry grin from the audience who've understood the like 35-minute lecture they've had to endure to get to that punchline, right? But the fact is that the film isn't made up of a seamless carpet of those moments stacked on top of one another. It's made up of a lot of clunky, shonky, wonky rubbish, and then occasionally there's a bit that you're like, okay, fair enough, I'll let you have that. Like the idea of the person, they're like, whatever happens to one. Like, the, the fact is that the whole finger cut 
passing off thing obviously comes he obviously started with the two versions of the one person one older one younger facing off in the cafe because they ask about well your memories aren't really your memories now are you because you've changed it and he and bruce willis explains well it's kind of cloudy instead of memories what i have are like pictures of things that might happen and then when you do them they become memories like proper memories like we remember but until then they're just potential things that might happen and they're clearer or darker depending on how likely you are to do those things and and they make it very plain oh so you you remember what i've done after i've just done it but not before it's like yes and that is absolutely the key of like well how does that work if you're the person person from the future how does your memory work that's obviously the hook that got them into the writing him into the writing process and then that extrapolated into the scars on the arm bit and that's fine yeah these things by themselves are fairly solid but the problem is he's like a man who will take like an ikea flat pack piece of furniture which is perfectly fine and factory ready maybe even a bit above their usual quality standard and uh, he'll put it together and go what a lovely table and then his wife will come into the room and go it was supposed to be an easy chair that is ryan johnson there's nothing wrong with the bits it's just he puts them together all wrong he subverted expectations oh is you've watched that video have you oh it's no it's a very common refrain for you know criticism of a certain science fiction movie that was released a few years ago yeah there was a video where it's like this is how you subvert expectations correctly, and this is how Ryan Johnson did it. And that is exactly the point. I can completely go along with this. Again, when it comes to Star Wars, because the bits that he was making out of were standard, like Star Wars is like an Ikea, if I didn't really care that much and just wanted to be entertained for a couple of hours and that was fine, then it's fine. But it's, it's inconsequential. But you're right. It doesn't all fit together correctly. He's made a table out of the Star Wars armchair, absolutely. And and he's very proud of the table. But the fact is that everybody really wanted an armchair, and that includes Disney. Yes, it's very interesting you say it's his bits are fine, but when you stitch them all together it's a it's a bit of a, a bit of a mess that doesn't hang together correctly. That because yeah that, that's that's a pretty good summation I think. Let's move on to the whole TK ending. Right. right. The ending of Looper is particularly galling because it's that ending, the ending that goes, I'm going to shoot myself and now everybody's happy. It's like, it didn't work in the butterfly effect. I'm sure there were, it didn't work in It's a Wonderful Life, but at least they pulled that one back from the brink. Having your protagonist be a shitty person who discovers that killing themselves would be the best way to make the world all right is not all right and it's not a good ending and it's just all round terrible and we should stop doing it as a culture because we should be thoroughly ashamed that we even considered it okay so the ending is terrible i couldn't even remember the, the ending when i was starting. I was like yeah how does this mess of stuff work itself out and the answer is because the old guy doesn't kill the young mother the uber gangster telekinetic super gangster has a much nicer uh, upbringing and therefore goes into chicken farming in instead of killing people or something and it's like uh, uh, it's so didactic it's like the young joseph gordon levitt is a terrible person and as we see the film go on he may be the protagonist but he's a terrible person and the second time you watch it 
you don't even have the he's good at what he does to comfort you because he's not good at what he does. What he does is rubbish. It's like the McDonald's burger flipping of assassination. It's awful, boring, tedious work that a monkey could do. And he's oh, he's really good at that though. Well, whoopee, yeah. And so this terrible dreg of a human being does one unselfish thing, which turns out to be shoot himself through the heart, and. And that's it, everybody's hunky-dory now. It doesn't add up, and it doesn't pay off. It's interesting, because just to round this one off, I think one of the criticisms I agree about Last Jedi is that there's a conspicuous lack of competency on the behalf of any character. Both villains and heroes just seem to bumble around in a buffoonish way in the back end of the galaxy. And no one else outside their petty little squabble seems to give a damn about it. Yeah, but there's no one is particularly heroic or, or you know... People are brave, but no one's smart. No one's competent. At least in the original trilogy, Luke could do what he could do and Han could do what he could do. You know, the heroes all had their particular fields of expertise. But outside of Rey, who seems to be very good at mostly everything she does, everyone else is a completely clueless moron. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, actually, in Looper, there are a couple of people who are smart. There's a character called Kid Blue, who, who, when Jeff Daniels, the master gangster who is in charge of the Loopers, first loses track of Bruce Willis, he says, well, you just go home. And this kid, by himself, tracks down, but then subsequently loses the pair of them. But then, later on, he captures perfectly... Bruce Willis's character. It all goes south when he tries to hand him over to the Uber Gangster, because the Uber Gangster is incompetent. But Kid Blue, in fact, is correctly... He's not a hero, because he's an assassin. He's a Gatman. He's like a sharpshooter. But again, what we've got is these bunch of idiots with, like, guns, shotguns, who just shoot people in the stomach who are tied up and bag on red... And then you've got this whole squad of people who use really long-barreled revolvers to do precision shooting. And he's one of them. He's the hero, but, but just the script doesn't let him actually be a hero. Yeah, So he dies in ignominy. Um, and also, Bruce Willis's character becomes competent at killing. When he, when he runs out of money after his loop is closed, he becomes a proper mobster and learns how to shoot guns and do all that stuff he couldn't do like before. So he's actually pretty canny and wily and actually he loses the fight in the end because of one thing he doesn't believe that his younger self could possibly stop being selfish and that is his only weakness is that suddenly joseph gordon goes hey you know what i'm not selfish anymore i'll shoot myself in the heart and he's counting on the fact that, that won't happen but he's got reason to do that so in fact the two most heroic characters in looper are the bad guy and the other bad guy the two and jeff daniels no he's not competent he's like the third string bad guy but he's presented as the second string bad guy. So, yeah, Bruce Willis is like the bad guy because he murders children. And Kid Blue is the, uh, uh, is the bad guy. I don't know, because Joseph Gordon-Levitt didn't like them. But those two characters are competent and have good reason for what they do. But the script just writes them out. So that's what we do. So that was Looper. It's a terrible movie. Don't watch it. So, yeah, let's finish off today with Cabin in the Woods, which, uh, of course, uh, is going to be the Pomo Treat that uh, if you've not seen Cabin in the Woods, go away and watch it and come back. We'll wait. There is a club, isn't there, of people who've seen it or haven't seen it, and the ones who are in it, and look at those on the outside world. Like, 
We cannot talk to you about this until you have seen it. It's like some deep cabal secret, isn't it? No, well, no, this is the thing. Weirdly, I said to you, yeah, we're going to have to cut the film if you can't talk about it from a position of having seen it. And that's what's really interesting about this film. It doesn't even make sense to talk to someone who hasn't seen it about it, because even if you spoil it, it they won't be able to grasp the actual skill of what is done in the movie. That's the thing. Looper, you haven't seen Looper, now you probably never will, because I've done such a good job of selling it, but I don't mind talking about that to you and spoiling it. One, because it's a bad movie, but two, because there are movies you can watch and the other person could not have seen them and you can spoil them even, and they'd be like, if you watch it, it won't make any difference. I mean, you'll, you'll still enjoy it. But The Cabin in the Woods, you can only really dig into it if you've watched it. And if you haven't watched it, it would be pointless to spoil it. Pointless and cruel. Because what's the point? You can't talk about it. It doesn't open up the discussion. It kind of shuts it down. And I think, in a way, that is very clever. But in a way, Cabin in the Woods is one of the reasons why people are so bloody antsy about spoilers. Because it's like the perfect thing. If you spoil it, it doesn't make any difference. You can't then go on to enjoy a discussion about it. People have to watch it. And to be honest, if you watched it after it had been spoiled, you go, I understand what you were talking about now yeah that's pretty clever until you have seen the cabin in the woods you can't really talk about cabin in the woods and that is why people won't talk, talk about it with people who've not seen it not because they don't want to spoil it even though that is a noble enough intention and good on them now it's just us the people who've seen it and of course listeners who've seen it too so yeah we're all friends here what yes did you want, what did you want to say Leo? Oh, that second act, though, is tedious as balls. Second time round. First time round is fine because you don't know what's going to happen. But the second time round, there's a good 20 minutes in that, which is like, oh, my God, things happening, and then nothing happening really for 20 minutes, and then things happening again. Oh, so baggy in the middle. Really? You know what I'm talking about? Yes. From the point where the monster kills the hilarious stoner to the point where it turns out the hilarious stoner is not in fact dead nothing happens they drive around motorcycles and run into walls and discover stuff the rest of us already know Mm. it's just like well we have to put this 20 minutes in so the characters can catch up as much as possible the ones that aren't dead to where the audience are oh man they really needed to fix that but obviously because it was such a small movie, I think, ah, we'll get away with it. But they really don't, because that 20 minutes is a killer. So, yeah, now that I've uh, really hyped that up, uh, <laughs> do you know? Do you get that? Do you, do you understand what I'm talking about? Yes, because uh, the audience is let in on the joke. The joke has big implications we want to explore, but all the, all the characters caught in the trap still think they're in a standard horror movie, so to speak. And it, there's also the implication that all horror movies, of course are all run by the same organisation. And so those films where all the heroes die or whatever, it's, it's actually to appease the dark gods. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very clever idea, and now it's been done, no one else can do this. Because they'll all just say, oh, that's like Cabin in the Woods twist all over again. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it, you can't repeat the, the magic. And it is a, a beautifully self-contained thing in and of itself. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's been discussed about it, like how it sat on a shelf until four was a thing, and it came out because the Avengers were out, and they were hoping to cash in on the fact that 
it had Chris Helmsworth in it. But then it turned out, and Joss Whedon, of course, was directing. So that was another thing. And all of this stuff. But honestly, it's, it's one of the few things. It's like, it suffers from exactly the same thing that a lot of modern horror films suffer from. Uh, in the era where Supernatural is about to finish on its 15th season, every horror movie has to beware that uh, if only Sam and Dean turned up, this would be all stitched up in 15 minutes problem. Cabin in the Woods is no different. If Sam and Dean turned up, it would all be stitched up, well, more or less, apart from the evil ancient dark gods. But even then, that's just a season baddie to these guys. They'd find a way, even if the apocalypse happened, they'd escape into heaven or hell, they'd come back, they'd have a few adventures, they'd discover someone they thought was dead, isn't actually dead, or maybe it's just an alternative version of them, they'd find some recipe like a mystic pot noodle they'd throw it in the ancient god's face they would explode but then there'd be some other thing it would be a whole supernatural thing but it wouldn't be as fatal as it is when the winchesters don't turn up so it's not excused from that but again it's so good you don't care that you're like yeah but if the winchester turned up it'd all be wrapped up in 20 minutes or 22 episodes whichever is when you've got that freight of it's so good you don't care about the bad stuff, that's worthwhile. And I like the fact that it's got that kind of H.P. Lovecraft, like you thought you were watching just a normal horror movie, but it's actually a little bit Lovecraftian, but, and this is even better, it's like tongue-in-cheek Lovecraftian. I mean, genius, brilliance, fantastic, no problem at all. Um, and and in, even engages in the postmodern act of putting the audience into the shoes of an ancient elder god because like them you are watching this stuff for entertainment and so it's like mind expanding uh it did solidify for me the fact that i'm not a horror movie aficionado and i've known this for a while because there's certain films that you quite enjoy and, and one of them be final destination which i can find no pleasure in ordinary people, even stupid ordinary people who probably, who I have no sympathy for, meeting horrible deaths. And I think to be a horror fan, you have to find some enjoyment out of someone coming to a really horrible sticky end. And I, I just don't have that, that string in me that can detach my empathy from a character like that. Um, I think that the final destination is interesting that you should mention. As the makers of the Final Destination series say, it's a sideshow. It's not, it's not even a real movie. It's just a, look, something gross is going to happen. And that's about it, really. So it's probably not, maybe the better one is Saw. The thing about Saw is it has two layers that it works on. One is, once you've seen the first one, you become part of the Saw cult of people who are like, whatever, I am watching is not what I think I am watching. I am watching something else. There's like a time shift or a time gap or a, a character isn't doing what they think they're doing or there's some going to be some like crazy twist that'll make sense of some of the things that just don't add up in the course of it. So that's one thing. And then uh, particularly since Jigsaw died, there's the whole thing of kind of rooting for the sociopathic traumatized civil engineer because the people who he ensnares in his sadistic civil engineer games are all douchebags and we explore why they deserve to die and that is the point i mean in that case your empathy should 
be with the um, guy who was driven in, insane by the awful. I mean, yeah, essentially, if you're like one of those people who posts up the memes about whether a guy shoving his head out the door going, this is me just checking I hate the general public once again. If you're one of those people, basically a misanthropist, then that's perfect for you because it's about some guy who's just had it up to here with all the goddamn people yeah, and their bullshit. Yeah. And that's that's where we're at with that. The Cabin in the Woods has, he does have a tragic sense because they deliberately write it so that the people who act like morons halfway through are all intelligent, sparky human beings who are drugged into yeah. being stupid. Um, and then you feel, oh, no, that, that's terrible. So, you know, the, horror movies do have this. Horror movies, I think, are particularly moralistic. In fact, the only reason you kill good people in a horror movie is because you're trying to abuse the audience. You're trying to say, this is what you want to see, huh? You want to see good people dying. Whereas usually people who die in horror movies are complete assholes of one stripe or another and yeah. even if you don't know it when you see it later on they explore the assholeness of the victim it depends you can it can be societal friday the 13th looks a bit harsh now but we've kind of loosened our attitudes towards casual teenage sex in the meanwhile the bit mainly you're like no, yeah, you don't just have to die it's it's when they're like i, I can't remember the exact point of the film it's near the turning point where things start falling apart. The engineers underground think they're finally successful, and we see the heroine that's been bounced around to her death outside, and they're all breaking open the champagne. And you're giggling. I remember you giggling at this part when they're, 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 you know, she's, she's dying in the background, and they're all happy about it. And there's that juxtaposition of things. Well, I couldn't get over it. It's just like, well, this is, just seems really horrible to me. Yeah, uh, but the thing is what you have to remember, and this is how they, uh, the actors had to play the scene those people in the room as far as they're concerned have saved the world for the next decade or whatever like they have entertained the old god they have done the ritual they've been through the tropes and yes that person had to die and that's terrible but the life of the one is worth sacrificing for the good of the society no, it's, a funny, as a it's a funny moment it's not a moment of relief that you found this entertaining. I mean, you can say the characters have rationale for doing what they're doing. Well, fair enough. It's just that me as an audience member, well, clearly I'm going to resonate with the poor person who's been tricked into some place to be horribly murdered. And indeed, we're quite with them when they deliberately trigger the end of the world at the end, because this feels like a world that doesn't deserve well, yes. to survive. But that's kind of the, what the movie's about. It's like, on the one hand, you sh- you should in inverted commas, be rooting for the teams of people who are trying to placate the old gods. But the thing is, again, once we get into this audience relationship, you, the audience, are the old gods. And in a way, there's another thing the movie is saying, and what the movie is saying is, horror movie fans like horror movies that play out like horror movies, yeah? And when you've seen a horror movie that plays out like a horror movie, you go, oh, that was a good horror movie. And if you don't, you go on the internet and say, oh, it was terrible, blah, 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 like that. You are like the Elder God trying to bring about an apocalypse on the internet because you were displeased by the entertainment that didn't satisfy the tropes in the way that you wanted them to be satisfied, right? And at the end of The Cabin in the Woods, you're with the people who are like, no, shake it up. We're not just going to do the same thing over and over again because you get a jolly out of it. You've got to find some other way to get your kicks. You've got to be creative. You've got to be imaginative. You've got to engage with the process. 
And that is what the end of the cabin in the woods means. Like, it's the end of the world for people who just want to make another Jason movie or another Freddy movie. It means that in order to make move the horror genre onward, you have to stop doing all the crap that people used to do and find something new to scare people. Now, it is notable that the people, Joss Weed and Drew Goddard, who made this, have not succeeded in this one iota since writing and making The Cabin in the Woods. But it's a fine argument to make, even though it's ultimately proved to be hollow on the grounds of the fact that the people didn't take any action to make that happen. Oh, well, never mind. So, you know, that's that's essentially where we're at with it. So, yeah, at that point, we are supposed to be... Th- switching our allegiance to say, well, do we have to do this this way again? Is that what we have to do? Because I'm bored shitless by the whole thing. Could we do something else instead? Well, it's a genre of films made for not much money, so therefore I don't think it has particularly high aspirations. It just has to kind of give people what they want. thing is, like you say, I'm not a horror fan, because I, I've watched a film called Skeleton Kid. I don't like it with the fact it's, it's, it's a heroine kind of trapped in a, psycho, a horrible psychological situation. And like, like a mouse trapped in a maze. At the end of it, there's a twist, and then she's really royally screwed over. Uh, and it's like, oh, so she basically had a horrible time, and then got squished by a giant hammer. Hmm. Uh, so I, I don't. I need to have that release at the end. And the whole thing about and then they all died doesn't do it for me. I, the whole doom and tragedy. Not even, it's not even tragedy. It's just doom. Uh, whereas I think horror fans like that kind of thing. They like the twist that really shows them that they're even more screwed than they thought they were. Well, I think, again, in the case of the skeleton key, you're talking about the pleasure an audience derives is getting there before the writer wants them to, working it out in advance. They don't care what actually happens, because that's not where they're... They just want to know, what is happening here? And then once they've worked it out, if they've beat the writer... That's where they get their happiness from. And they go, ah, and of course this would happen, and of course I would survive where this woman who didn't beat the writer doesn't. I don't know, it's not a very good movie, to be honest. It doesn't really stand up to a second viewing. So, yeah, I mean, you really want to look at the, the great horror movies in order to decide or assess whether or not that's a good idea or not. Skeleton Key has a good soundtrack, but isn't a very good movie. Well, Exorcist, lots of good people die, but ultimately Regan is, re- is redeemed. Uh, so you, you could say there's a kind of a hopeful ending to it. And I suppose Ellen, I suppose Alien is a horror movie. Ripley survives. At least she did for the first film. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Alien is probably the better place to go. I'm not Mark Kermode, so I can't do The Exorcist. But I've seen Alien or been through Alien. I'm listening to an Alien radio play, which is an alternative spin-off of the end of the first Alien at the moment. Well, they've, they've rebooted Aliens out of existence? Well, it's a Dirt Mags radio play about, uh, called Alien Out of the Shadows that's on Audible, and I, they've made it into a like a ten-part podcast. I'm listening to it, and it's fine. I think the end of Alien is very much like what they expected it to be, like the end of Back to the Future. It's like that's the end, but but that's all, folks. You know, like that's the whole point of the end of Alien, and all of the sequels just spit in the eye of that ending, really, well, no, no, no. including I- Aliens. But I'm just saying, yeah, well, I'm just looking at other horror, of course, Alien is a horror movie, and it does at least have the, the alien, the, the beast is vanquished and someone survives, and I can, I can kind of hold on to that, but it's these ones where everyone dies miserably. The well, Final what's Destination good, movies. Well, the Final Destination, as I said, is a sideshow. Uh, I cannot think of a single good, well-regarded 
horror movie, which is in that genre. Yeah, there's loads of cruel, sick, bad films, but... uh Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, yeah, those are series where the Nightmare on Elm Street, the first Nightmare on Elm Street, has the gag ending. It's like the punchline, where it's like, oh, we've beaten Freddy. Oh, have we? Which, again, is like a sort of version of that. That's all, folks. It's just a punchline. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean we're going to make Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Uh, I mean, they did, and then they went on from there. But the Nightmare on Elm Street was supposed to be self-contained. Again, Friday the 13th, Jason Voorhees, not a character in a living character, or even an undead character in Friday the 13th. You probably haven't watched it. I'm going to ruin it for anyone who's not seen this yeah, nearly 40-year-old movie. It's his mother. Yeah, it's so a, it's, it's a like a stand, it's like an Ag- Yeah, it's an Agatha Christie movie, just with more stabbings, you know, more... Bloody stabbings. Yeah. It's also the like, twist of Scream the, 2. Yeah, there isn't a single well-regarded, I would say, this is obviously a topic for another podcast, we're going to have to wind this one up. There isn't a single well-regarded horror movie that delights uh, in, like, the horror of people just dying. There are horror movies that do that, but none of them are great. They're all a bit wonky and badly regarded, usually. Uh, well, in fact, I say usually... Uh, I'm like the guy with the coffee. Uh, prove me wrong. You know, just tell me which of these great horror movies, uh, does delight in the utter damn beatness. Oh, of course, The Mist. Oh, I hate that film. Um, but you know, yeah, exactly. Let's not go there. Let us in fact say, hey, if you want to disagree with our opinions about horror movies or any of the movies that we've talked about, if you're affected by the horror movies that have been mentioned, in this podcast where Ian might they go to complain to us about such a thing well one place they could go to, to tell us and not to discuss the uh, plot of uh, Cabin in the Woods would be our Facebook page which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids and that's 80s as a number so it's serious please go there and like our page leave a comment we do post there but that's not all you can also find a complete archive of all our shows at the 80s Kids and that's 80s as in letters dot blogspot dot com and, uh, yes, we're all there. Now, Leo will say a few other things, and then we'll round off. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, well done. That was very good that you pulled that. That's our end spiel. For those of you listening to the first half of 2012, where we just kind of didn't really bother, I feel a bit bad. Like, we do this whole thing. We've done all this stuff. We've put in the effort, the show notes, and all this stuff. And then it's just like, hey, come and like our Facebook page. Go and look at our archive. But, honestly, these things are the lifeblood of any such production such as this. And so without the social media buzz uh, such as it is, it doesn't even have to be a particularly loud buzz, you know, like a mosquito that's just come past your ear and then it suddenly just disappears off into the cavern of your living room where you're now going to hunt it frantically for about three hours before giving up and concluding it was probably on its way out of that open window over the there before you eventually get stung that's the kind of buzz that we'd be happy with it doesn't need to be like a three alarm fire it's it's really not but at the moment it's a bit quiet over there so if you haven't ever before please now consider engaging with us in a it's not so people call it social media it's not it's just people posting things on the internet and and we are all for that. In fact, we do such a thing. So why don't you join us? And then there may be more things posted and you might find them vaguely interesting or entertaining. Also, if there's a message to take out of 2012, I would say studios concentrate on those three or four 
big releases because you're going to get some weird crap around the edges, and that's what I live for. How about you, Ian? The biggest tragedy of the films of 2012 is that we discussed the film 2012, which is a disaster. Yes. Oh, did it? I, I think I didn't even merit it worthy of discussion. Unless it, yeah, it came out in 2012, didn't it? John Cusack flying his plane through a bunch of CGI rubbish. This is a film so famously bad. Dara O'Brien does a, like a, a half hour stage skit about it. We don't really need to go there. And in fact, we won't. But, uh, yeah, 2012, uh, was a good year. Um, and part of what made it a good year was was the care and attention paid to those big blockbusters like The Avengers and The Dark Knight Rises. But part of what made it good was the allowing people around the edges to just go, hey, I've got this crazy idea. Now, admittedly, sometimes out of that we got, like, Ted or Looper. But sometimes we got Dread, Cabin in the Woods, Iron Sky, all of these movies that are actually uh, little cherished favourites of mine. That, 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 you know, we wouldn't have had, uh, otherwise. Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas does not seem like a film of 2012 to me. But it, it the, was. It is, it is the film that redeemed the Wiskowskis for me, because I felt they were on such a downward trajectory, and suddenly Cloud Atlas comes out and says, oh my god, they've still got it! Yeah, people have come up with many theories in the meanwhile about what Jupiter Ascending is, quote unquote, really about. And of course, there was that whole Netflix series thing. I will always roll up for the Wachowskis when they've done something. It's going to be interesting, even if it's on a long plane. Like, you presenting in the immediate aftermath, the only thing anybody could say is like, really? Like that, you know, like that one character in Jupiter Ascending. Yeah, but over time, people have gone, well, you realise this is what it's really about. And, and I'm like, I think you're reading too much in. But at the same time, it's like, I'm delighted that you can read that in and come up with some kind of theory of, of goodness about why it's worthwhile because I'm not going to say that the Wachowskis didn't know that was there because all their other work kind of tends to indicate that maybe they did know it was there. Maybe not the best way to show off their thesis, but hey, fine, whatever. In fact, it's probably going to go in that pile now. Jupiter Ascending goes on the pile with Speed Racer of things, which I think maybe one day I should reappraise, but then... mm, there's better stuff to watch on television. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's it. So uh, now we can be added to your list. You're going to listen to this podcast and go, oh, well, that was a really good podcast. I think it was really good. I'm not sure. Maybe I'll have to listen to it again. But, oh, ooh, there's something on the television. Oh, the other Amazon Prime just released The Boys. Oh, I'm too busy to re-listen to podcasts I've already listened to. And that is where we live. And that is where we're happy. Isn't that right, Ian? Yes, I'm going now. What about you, Justin? I will mainly be waking up on a Saturday morning, staring kind of forlornly and just wandering around for a few hours in a kind of a hazy stupor. Right, well, there we go. I'm not playing this game. He's unbelievably racist. Yes. I, well, what more is there to be said than that? Uh, it's time for us to say bye-bye. Uh, and and uh, Justin's words will hang with us all until the next time we're here, which will be next week, when we're probably discussing, I think, either Batman or Spider-Man, one of those two, anyway. Uh, so for now, bye-bye. Bye. Farewell.